we're going to be looking at two passages briefly this morning, so please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Today's reading comes from Mark 16, 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 2 Corinthians 4, 13-18 Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that this morning you bring us here, and uh, maybe some of us are surprised to find ourselves in a church, because it's been a long time, and uh, we feel like Christianity is something like old clothes that perhaps we've outgrown. Uh, Others of us here are excited because we are looking forward to continuing to celebrate all that you've done in your Son. And many of us are in many different places across the spectrum of faith. But, Father, regardless of where we are, we pray that you would meet us here this morning in the good news of your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, In an opinion article for the New York Times, Ross Dothat earlier this week described the Gospels as the strangest story ever told. The strangest story ever told. Now, if you think about it for a second, I think he's absolutely right. Because it is a strange story about a God who's born a man who was crucified for the sins of the world on Good Friday, 
and then is resurrected on Easter Sunday so the world would be reconciled to God. It is a strange story indeed. And here's the question I want us to focus on this morning. And what if this story isn't just a myth or a symbol? What if it is actually true? As one theologian put it, the resurrection is of little use as a mere symbol. Because if Easter is just a symbol, it just is something like, hey, there's always a spring after a very long winter. If it's a symbol that says hope will always bloom in some eternal way, if it means that somehow we just can be resilient even amongst hard things, all of those things are great and wonderful until you find yourself face-to-face with real evil, with suffering, and death itself. Because a metaphorical resurrection really crumbles in the face of the cold, hard realities of suffering and death. And as we had on the screen earlier, uh, as John Updike once said, he says, let us not mock God with metaphor. Metaphors just aren't strong enough. And what you begin to realize when you look at the gospel accounts is you see a group of people whose lives are utterly transformed They rebuild their lives around the truth of something that happened in secular history, which is the resurrection of Jesus himself. If you go through Mark 16, that was just read, you begin to realize there was no one who actually expected Jesus to rise. Did you notice that? It's not the women. Notice the disciples aren't even there, okay? Because if you really believe Jesus is going to show up, you would want a front seat to this spectacular sight. But they're not there. The women are showing up with spices, which was an act of piety and devotion. The women wanted to show Jesus. They wanted to offset the strong stench of death. But rather than seeing that, they see something else that changes their life. It's a story that begins to shape us in brand new ways if we begin to understand these women who left that tomb in great fear that day, actually met the resurrected Jesus, and then so did the disciples, and then 500 others, in such a way that not only changed their lives, but it turned the world upside down. Because if Easter is true, it really does change everything. Because I know some of you are thinking, well, so what? I don't even know what that actually means. I don't know how this actually helps me. And I want us to just uh, consider this morning in our short time something the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because he says, if the resurrection is true, it actually allows us to endure suffering in this life. Suffering in this life. I mean, that is the one thing that is sure is going to come for us. It's the inevitability of suffering. You and I are going to face disappointment that is crushing to our souls. Our lives are not always going to go the way we had hoped. We may find that we have regrets, that we have illnesses, and we may have even lost loved ones. And it's as Thomas Hobbes famously wrote, 
This life is nasty, brutish, and short. I was reminded of this a few months back when I got a call from a very dear and old friend of mine. His child's the same age as my daughter. They were born just a couple months apart. They're in the same grade. And my friend called asking for prayer because a couple of weeks into his sophomore year in college, this child had to fly home struggling with severe mental health issues and checked themselves into a hospital. We talked about suffering that his child was going through and how this was not how things should be. It was not how we envisioned our children would grow up so many years ago when they were born into this world. And he asked me to pray for him as a father, also for his child, for his family. And he said, I don't know what to do except turn to the Lord. And we talked about God's promises that he would walk with us in the darkest moments like this one, when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death. We encourage each other, I encourage him to cast his burdens on God who promises to sustain us. You know, this is what life throws at us. Life sometimes feels like it has a temper and it is taking it out on us. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you feel that deeply because of the things you're going through right now or the things you have suffered through. Suffering seems to find us in this life. And in our culture today, the culture of this modern West, this may be the culture that least prepares their members to face suffering. In the midst of so many modern advances, some would argue we actually have the fewest resources to deal with suffering. And here's why. And here's the thing. If this life is all there actually is, man, we have one chance. We have one opportunity, to quote Hamilton, not to miss our shot, right? (laughs) To have a great life. We need to make sure this life is a heaven here in this world. Everything we are hoping for needs to happen in this life. This means my individual happiness, my fulfillment is the only purpose worth living for, right? I have to have my best life now. And we hope to have a marriage, a wonderful marriage, our kids, our careers. And do you see how when suffering comes, for someone who is part of our secular modern culture, it isn't just hard, but it is absolutely devastating. Because it doesn't just take away our joys, but it takes away our purpose for life itself, and it can be absolutely crippling. Crippling. The psychologist Steven Pinker in his book, Enlightenment Now, argues that empirically the world has gotten better. The modern world has been successful. You know, he would argue there is decreasing violence, warfare, poverty, and we have longer life expectancy than ever before. And it's probably all true. The numbers do add up. The math adds up. Yet Andrew Sullivan, in a review of Pinker's book, would say, yeah, all those things are true. But he made an observation. 
that I think is absolutely telling. Pinker doesn't have a way of explaining why, for example, there is so much profound discontent, depression, drug abuse, despair, addiction, and loneliness in the most advanced liberal societies. He goes on to note, as we have slowly and surely attained more progress, we have lost something that undergirds all of it, meaning, cohesion, and a different, deeper kind of happiness than the satiation of all our earthly needs. Where do we find that? And in contrast, though, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And what Paul is saying is that if Jesus has actually risen from the dead in the body, then all of our suffering is transformed and it becomes a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits. If Easter is true, the Bible claims our suffering, our griefs, our disappointments, and our losses do not have the last word. And a greater glory actually awaits that will heal our hurts. And the scriptures keep asking us, do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe that? There was a terrific article in the New Yorker a few years ago a friend of mine sent me. And it was entitled, What Thomas Jefferson Could Never Understand About Jesus. It was written by a man named Vincent Cunningham. It's an article about the Jefferson Bible. Some of you know about this, that uh, Thomas Jefferson in 1820 put together a condensed version of the Bible. And he entitled it, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And what he did is he took a blank book, he had a Bible... He had a razor and glue, and he extracted the gospel passages without the doctrines and the miracles. And his goal was to preserve this ethical teaching of Jesus in the gospel with all the stuff that people really don't like. You know, miracles, healings, all the stuff about him claiming to be God. Because he wanted a Jesus Christ that would resonate with the intellectual crowd of the Enlightenment. But when Jefferson made Jesus in his own image, this Enlightenment intellectual, that Jesus has very little to offer to people like Frederick Douglass or Howard Thurman or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is what he writes in the article. Frederick Douglass's Jesus is not Socrates. He is, a, he is as Douglass wrote, the Redeemer Savior and friend of those who diligently seek him. Douglas did not wish to remove Christ from the Gospels or to separate the New Testament from the Old. Jefferson's Jesus is an admirable sage, fit bedtime reading for seekers of wisdom. But for those who are weak and suffering or in urgent trouble, they would have to look elsewhere. He goes on to say, but for Douglas... 
For Thurman, the crucifixion meant that Christ had radically identified himself with the worst off. Those societal cast-offs who would never get a break now had a savior and a champion. Where death for Jefferson's Jesus is an ending. For Thurman's Jesus, it is just a start. Jefferson's laconic Jesus, though full of wisdom, was bereft of spiritual power. It's a remarkable observation because he is arguing the power to endure real suffering, to resist oppression, to overcome genuine hardship. You cannot get that from a sanitized version of Jesus. What we all need is a risen Savior who has vanquished evil, suffering, and death. And the real power to persevere and endure suffering comes not because we believe this world is all there is. The real power to endure comes from the fact that God has already already defeated the worst hour of our evil. He has come so that our suffering would not have the last word. And if Easter is just a symbol, Frederick Douglass would say, we have a Christianity full of wisdom, but it is bereft of power to actually change us or impact us. Let me ask you this this morning. What is it that you yourself are suffering with? And what if you knew that your suffering would not have the last word. What if you knew there was an eternal weight of glory that will not just make you forget your suffering, but a glory that begins to reach back into our lives and begins to heal our suffering and wipe away our tears even now? Because if Easter is true, that is the promise we have in Jesus Christ. If Jesus physically rose on the third day as the scriptures describe, there are incredible resources to face our suffering. That's the first thing I want us to think about. The resurrection gives us. The second thing is to think about this. The resurrection actually allows us to face death at the end of life. Chapter 4, verse 14 of 2 Corinthians Listen to this voice, uh, verse. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. What is Paul trying to say here in this very brief sentence? That the God who raised Jesus will raise us also. That is a promise for us. And with Jesus... Bring us with you, meaning all those in the Corinthian church, into his presence. I mean, that changes the way we begin to think about death. We've been talking a lot about tragedy and the death the past two weeks. This school shooting in Nashville touched some of us very deeply and personally. This past Wednesday was Catherine Kuntz's funeral. She was the head of Covenant School. And so many beautiful stories have been coming out of Nashville, but I was deeply moved by her husband's tribute at the funeral. And he said this, Catherine would be embarrassed 
if our admiration of her distracted us from other wounded households. She was a champion for others and among the first to recognize when someone is isolated and lacking support, burdened by shame. Therefore, honoring Catherine compels us to remember a seventh family, equally wounded in the loss of someone dear to them. We count on the Lord and our community to support them generously, extravagantly, and to offer them the hope that sustains. We are trusting in the strong and loving embrace of a strong and loving God to take each of the seven that died and heal their wounds and their souls. How does he find these words to encourage the community who is there to mourn the death of his wife, to care for the family of the shooter? How can he look to the needs of this family as he grieves his own loss? I mean, that's the question I keep asking myself. And the only place I keep coming back to is this hope of the resurrection that he has. Because it changes the way we deal with death. You know, you go back to verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence that somehow we're going to be together before Christ. You know, it it changes the way we approach death. Some of you have asked me and the other staff to pray for ailing parents that you have, those who are facing end of life. It's one of those really hard things that we face. We occasionally also hear of friends I mean, I'm at an age where I hear about people my age, my peers, who are facing serious illness or hear or receive a funeral announcement. And my wife and I are always thinking, I mean, they were so young. And we start talking about, well, we should put a world together because some version of this is probably how it ends for us. You know, this is me talking very candidly and frankly. And, of course, we never get to that, we feel like. Um, getting that paperwork done. But the fact of our mortality, I mean, each one of us has to face death. And what Paul is saying here is that if Jesus rose again from the grave, then some version of that is not how it will end. It's not. Death will not have the last word. Luke Ferry is a French philosopher and a, a... proponent of secular humanism. And while he was still teaching at uh, Sorbonne, he wrote a very popular little book entitled A Brief History of Thought. It was out probably 15 years ago, maybe less. But he's basically doing a 30,000-foot survey of the Western philosophical tradition. And in there, there's this whole chapter devoted to Christianity. And he said, although he himself is not religious... He says, one cannot hope to understand the Western world, the world we live in, without understanding Christianity. And he says this about how Christianity thinks about death. The Christian response to mortality is without question the most effective of all. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us to beat death itself. And by doing so in terms of individual identity rather than anonymity or abstraction. 
It seems to be the only version that offers a truly definitive victory of personal immortality over our condition as mortals. I grant you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity, provided, that is, that you are a believer. If one is not a believer, well, then we must learn to think differently about the ultimate question. We have to think differently about it. He's saying Christianity is unique because the Bible teaches that when you die, you don't just dissolve into being a part of some life force. You don't become some abstraction. You don't lose your sense of personhood or identity or individuality. But what Faree is saying, Christianity teaches the moment you die, actually you become more yourself. More fully you. This is what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 4. But Faree is also saying for those who cannot believe or choose not to believe, we have to think about the ultimate question of death differently. And here's what I want to ask you today. What if thinking differently about that ultimate question is actually being open to asking What if Jesus actually did rise from the dead? What if I investigate that question of Christ's resurrection with a real open mind rather than coming at it as Jefferson did? Maybe thinking differently about this question is asking, could this have happened? Because if it is true, Paul is saying there is an eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Then for the followers of Christ, the best is yet to come. Death does not have the final word. It doesn't. So Easter gives us resources for dealing with not only suffering, it allows us to face death at the end of life. And lastly, and briefly, Resurrection, belief in it, allows us to find true satisfaction for our deepest, deepest longings. Go back to verse 14 again. Notice he says here, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you, and look at this last phrase, into his presence. Into his presence, into God's presence. And then he goes on to say, so we do not lose heart. Why? Because we're in the presence of God. And he says, because we'll be in God's presence, all this stuff, all the suffering we're experiencing, it's light and momentary in light of the eternal weight of glory. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Don't look at transient things, but look at the things that are eternal. Paul is saying in the end, The satisfaction of all our longings is going to be fulfilled in a person. In a person. A person that is behind this universe. A God moved by love. Not an impersonal, indifferent force. That ultimately the fulfillment of your greatest longings in this life is not living forever. Although that's going to be true. It's not even life without suffering, although that too will be true. That ultimately the thing we long for in this life is a love that will never, 
ever leave us. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, it says about God, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence, hear that phrase again, the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. Again, in the presence of God, there is this deep satisfaction that nothing in this world can actually give us. I mean, C.S. Lewis actually preached a sermon on this text entitled The Weight of Glory. And he makes this argument that we as human beings are the only creatures made with desire that this world cannot satisfy. And if that is really true, okay, if that is true, perhaps that is the truest part of who we actually are. That somehow there's almost a spiritual beacon that has never, ever been extinguished from our human soul. And this is why perhaps you have experienced that even in your most joyous moments, it didn't last. All the longings that you experience in that moment of joy, as good as that is or that was, you feel like you're made for something more. There has to be something more. That there's a joy. There's something out there beyond what we see. And our hearts are beckoning for it, and the beacon of our hearts are longing for it. And if, isn't that possible? And if that is a part that is the truest part of who we are, here's the good news. It means that at Easter, this is what we know. That this joy, God himself, hasn't waited for you and me to find out and figure out how to climb some ladder to get and access this joy. God himself hasn't stood far away and said, you know what? Only the best of you morally will make it. But if Easter is true, if Jesus is who he claims to be, it means that God himself has broken through the wall that separates heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. The joy, God himself, his love has come in search of you. See? And the greatest shock of it all is when the joy of God came looking for us. It came looking for us in the person of Jesus, and it cost him everything in order to achieve your forgiveness. He didn't come just to invite you into love, but he came to lay down his own life, to pay the price of our selfishness, of our sinfulness, our bitterness, our hatred, all of our evil. And he did it. Jesus made his way to the cross to take all of our sufferings, our sorrows, and sins so we can experience pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. This is what our hearts long for so desperately. I mean, friends, if Easter is true, my goodness, is it not the strangest story ever told? Which seems so improbable today here in Silicon Valley. And it was just as improbable in Jerusalem in the first century. But if this is true, hope cannot be taken away, cannot be extinguished. Do you know this hope? Have you considered the claims? Easter offers much more than a metaphor. 
And if that is true, we are indeed celebrating a happy Easter and praise God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come this morning thanking you uh, for what you give us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that this morning for some of us, um, as we rehear this story, may the strangeness of it sit with us in such a way it kind of fires up our imagination to re-engage this beautiful love story of all that Christ has done. We pray that this would happen in our hearts, whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time. Because more than anything else, we need to experience your love to us. Give us hope, we ask. Give us a fresh understanding. Renew our hearts, Lord. And we ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen.